You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, trade and technology, politics, security, and a lot more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this episode of The Zeitgeist, uh, the podcast of the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. I'm Jeff Rathke, and it's terrific to have you with us. And I'm uh, very happy to welcome today the Deputy Director General of the World Trade Organization, Annabel Gonzalez. Welcome, Annabel. Hi, uh, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, you know, uh, I... I think I say at the start of every podcast that I'm excited to have this guest with us. You know, it's a bit like Lucille Bluth saying, I love all my children equally, but it's really true because uh, today we're talking about, about trade, about global order, and about the changing um, international relations environment and how they intersect. And uh, so I think this is a fascinating topic and uh, few people as uh, well positioned as you to give us uh, insights. Um, if I can start um, uh, by mentioning uh, Annabel Gonzalez is the Deputy Director General of the WTO. She, uh, in the previous uh, incarnations, has been a World Bank official. She was the Trade Minister of Costa Rica. Um, she has uh, worked at the WTO and was also, uh, in a way, a neighbor of ours here in Washington because she was a non-resident fellow at the Peterson Institute, which is just next door to us on Massachusetts Avenue. Um, so to get uh, into the discussion, you know, the the idea of an open and rules-based trading system um, is what the WTO was created um, uh, to promote and to manage. Uh, at the same time, it's increasingly called into question because countries as diverse uh, as uh, the United States uh, and many, many others uh, have uh, looked at domestic uh, priorities, at climate priorities, at national security priorities, and they're trying to elevate those and they seem to come into competition um, with the rules-based trading order. Um, so, uh, Annabelle, my first question is, how is the WTO responding to these turbulent times? So, um, I think I should probably start by saying that uh, I, I see the global trading order uh, drifting towards geoeconomic fragmentation, uh, and that is of concern if we want to preserve and expand the role of trade as a source of growth, of prosperity, of, uh, of resilience. And uh, my worry here is not really that much that globalization is going into reverse, uh, but more uh, that, um, you know, that uh, it's it's heading in the wrong direction. And and I say this because, you know, after, after all, trade has been remarkably robust over the past few years. Uh, global uh, merchandise trade reached uh, record highs in 2021 and again in 2022. Uh, despite the tariff increases, merchandise trade uh, between the U.S. and China in 2022 was at an all-time record of $730 billion, something similar uh, for uh, for the EU. So, so the concern is not that much that is going into globalization going into reverse. But as I was saying that it's going in the wrong direction in the sense that when we need more common approaches to underpin uh, globalization to tackle some important global challenges like climate change, we seem to be moving towards a situation where power rather than rules uh, shapes trading uh, relationships. 
And this shift may not be uh, visibly in the aggregate trade data, or at least not yet, but it is being driven by several forces. And you mentioned some of them, well, the rise in geopolitical uh, tensions, uh, the resurgence of trade distortive industrial policy and the their potential to spiral uh, into a uh, uh, mutually harmful subsidies race, uh, a rapid resort uh, by some to techno-nationalism and self-sufficiency to shore up economic resilience. Now, I think some of this may be inevitable, but uh, if taken too far, these forces could easily overwhelm trade cooperation, leading to heightened policy uncertainty, uh, growing disregard for global trade rules and shrinking opportunities. So our best insurance policy against uh, such a lose-lose outcome is a reform, strengthened and improved WTO. And this basically means a WTO that can do more in several areas. And the first one is managing trade tensions. And here a priority would be uh, the restoration of the WTO, WTO uh, dispute settlement system, which is the cornerstone of the rules-based trading order and no longer works as uh, intended. And we can talk more about this um, maybe later on. Um, but it also means that WTO can do more to unlock new trade opportunities. And here, uh, we know that digital technologies are driving new trade opportunities in both goods and especially services. Uh, you know, the global exports of digitally delivered services have more than tripled since 2005, and they're registering an annual growth rate uh, between 2005 and 2021 of more than 8% which is far higher than the rate for other services exports or for um, or for trading goods. Uh, so the WTO could do more to speed up, uh, to get uh, you know up to speed with the reality of the globalized services and digital economies. And last but not least, ensuring that the climate transition happens not just quickly, uh, but also in a way that is just uh, and fair. And this is again, a very important topic. Let me just conclude by saying, that WTO members are taking encouraging steps, in my view, to revitalize the WTO. We had a successful ministerial conference in June last year, where we delivered a historic agreement to curb harmful fish uh, subsidies, a framework on pandemic preparedness, and a commitment to refrain from adopting restrictions that hamper humanitarian food exports. At the same time, there are a number of WTO members who are negotiating plurilaterally on a number of issues, uh, investment facilitation, digital trade, on some environmental issues. So, you know, progress is being uh, made, but I would say it is just the start and more work will be needed to reform the WTO so that it can be fit for uh, purpose in the 21st century. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, those were uh, pretty clear words. You said that uh, that, that that the global trading uh, relations are heading in the wrong direction, and and so I want to pick up on on some of the forces behind that. Um, you know, everything from the COVID nineteen pandemic to the geopolitical uh, concerns that rise now around uh, China. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, what we see, uh, among other things, it, are efforts to reorient supply chains to make them more secure, more resilient. This, you know, this is of course where we get the phrase uh, "friend shoring" used by uh, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen, among others, or the European Commission uh, President von der Leyen called for de-risking. Um, in other words, 
they are developing a set of principles and priorities that either take precedence over the established rules for international trade, or perhaps they coexist somehow in an uneasy competition with trade rules. So how much of a threat is that to the multilateral trading system um, beyond the short term? Because as you point out, trade actually is rising um, despite these tendencies. But how much of a threat is that in the in the medium or, or longer term? Mm. So uh, this is a very important uh, uh, question, uh, Jeff. And uh, again, the, the starting point is really that, uh, you know, the talk about the coupling or the risking or friendshoring uh, is running quite a bit ahead of the data. So, so this is a, a starting point. And, and this is, there's, I, I don't think there's a surprise to that. Uh, some of these global uh, supply chains are, are really, you know, very sophisticated ecosystems that have taken years to be, you know, put in place. And it's not that easy uh, or or desirable, uh, desirable for that matter, uh, to uh, dismantle them. This is why we have seen, for instance, uh, uh, a consulting company, Kearney's uh, Reshoring Index for the U.S., for example, indicates that over the past two years, U.S. companies have relied more, not less, on, uh, on Asian uh, suppliers. Um, now, Instead of supply chain contraction, what we're seeing is really production shifting from one economy to another, especially within Asia, whether for labor cost arbitrage, uh, automation, uh, or becomes uh, firms, you know, desire to diversify production locations and suppliers. And we have the case of Vietnam, for example, that saw its participation in global value chains grow by an annual um, average of 14.3% from 2010 to 2019. Uh, we've also seen uh, similar increases, although from a lower base in uh, in Cambodia and uh, in Lao PDR, for example. Now, I have to say, and I, that I want to sound a word of caution, because today's trade volumes reflect past investments. Uh, ongoing changes in investment patterns, uh, and, and there's a very interesting uh, paper out recently by the IMF on this on this topic, uh, will take a few years to show up uh, in the trade data. Now, as I was saying, while some reshoring or, or nearshoring or friendshoring uh, appears somewhat inevitable in the current geopolitical context, I think it, 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 we need to be careful that it does not go too far because there's a genuine risk of uh, you know subsidy creep and regulatory creep uh, to to additional sectors, and this uh, you know escalating retaliatory uh, measures would make everyone uh, worse uh, worse uh, off. And most economies will simply not have the resources to uh, to com- to compete. And all this complicates the WTO's efforts to provide a rules based um, level playing field. Now. It's also important, you know, to be under no illusion about how costly actual decoupling uh, would be. Uh, Economists here at the WTO have run uh, simulations as to, you know, what would happen if the world economy were to fragment into two self-contained trading blocks. And the diminished specialization and technology uh, technology spillovers alone would lower the long-run level of real global GDP by about 5%. And this is not a, a small figure. Uh, you know, it compares uh, to 3.5 uh, percent hit to the long-run potential output sustained by OECD countries after the global um, financial uh, crisis. The IMF, uh, in a recent paper, puts the GDP losses from deep decoupling at seven percent. 
But most important, I think it's important, you know, to keep in mind that reshoring could well end up making supply chains worse instead of better. Because closing the door to trade increases countries' exposure to domestic production shocks. And we saw this, for instance, in the U.S. last year with um, the baby formula crisis uh, in uh, in the U.S. Uh, market. And negative shocks uh, are likely uh, to become more frequent as, you know, droughts, heat waves, floodings, or others uh, havoc with production and transport. And this tend to be uh, localized. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, as well, let me just say one word that turning away from international market integration could put an end to decades of trade-enabled growth and development that have lifted billions of people uh, out of poverty. And, uh, you know, foreclosing opportunities uh, for people around the world um, is is not good, of course, for, for those people, but it's not good for, for the world at, at large, which is why, you know, more than talking about French foreign, because anyhow, you know, who's your friend today might not be your friend tomorrow or who's your friend uh, actually. Maybe there's an opportunity for bringing developing countries, for instance, that are that have been uh, on the margins of the global economy uh, to integrate further into into world trade by moving towards increased diversification of, uh, of supply chains. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you raise a really important uh, point there, not only about the time lag um, uh, for which we would see the effects of uh, more of a more fragmented system, but also if you think about this from an American uh, strategic perspective, the desire to have um, a strengthened engagement with the global South for a whole host of reasons um, that that could be foreclosed um, by uh, a, a a closing uh, attitude. Uh, toward trade. Um, I want to turn the mic over here to Peter Rashish, uh, Vice President of, a- of AGI and Senior Fellow uh, and Director of our Geoeconomics Program. Um, uh, please, Peter, take it away. Jeff, thank you. Uh, Annabelle, I wanted to um, focus the discussion just for a moment on the United States and on the, the Biden administration, um, which, um, since it came into office, has been promoting um, a worker-centered trade policy and a foreign policy for the middle class, but also more recently, in the last couple of months, in fact, you've seen speeches both by uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan that have called for a greater role for national security objectives in trade policy. And I wanted to ask if you think it's fair to ask trade policy to take on this job of promoting both um uh domestic you know more domestic equity on the one hand and on the other hand uh promoting countries national security objectives hmm. well you know peter that um uh, economists normally says that you should have like one solution for one for one problem uh right uh, and not apply like one solution to 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 every problem but Having said that, let me let me, for instance, focus on the issue of uh, of inclusion, because bringing you know more people, uh, small businesses and communities into the mainstream of the global economy is not just morally right, uh, but it's also I think in uh, in everyone's economic self interest. Uh, you know, more inclusive trade means a world trading system that is more adaptable and more resilient, uh, that enjoys broad based support. 
and that is relevant to the real life challenges of our time. So, you know, I, I, I like to say that just as trade empowers people, uh, people empower trade, and this is very important. Now, when thinking about inclusiveness, trade policymakers do not need to reinvent the wheel uh, because they, they already have several, I would say, practical, pragmatic, powerful tools uh, in their toolbox to expand the participation of people and countries in, in global value chains. Uh, let me just mention uh, three very briefly. Uh, the first is that you know, they could make trade easier, faster, and less costly. And this is critically important if we want to help small and women-owned businesses break into, into supply chains, because these businesses are disproportionately affected by burdensome customs procedures, inefficient shipping and logistics services, and other factors that increase the cost uh, the cost of trade. And here at the WTO, we have a, a very powerful tool to reduce trade costs, and this is the Trade Facilitation Agreement. So implementation, full implement, proper implementation of this agreement is very important to facilitate uh, inclusive, uh, inclusive trade. Second, I think it's important to unlock new trade opportunities, especially in the services sector. Uh, the services sector today generates more jobs and output than any other sector, uh, and rapidly growing services trade is already delivering ga major gains for female and for younger workers and entrepreneurs, as well as for small businesses. So joining services value chains has the potential to bring new opportunities for scale, innovation, export diversification for uh, for many countries. So this is, again, a very important area. However, the problem is that businesses confront, um, uh, you know, different policies, different regulations, different standards uh, across the world in this area. And it is important to ensure that to you know to leverage uh, this uh, this this uh, potential of uh, of services and of digital services in particular uh, that some kind of regulatory convergence of some principles can be agreed uh, to facilitate trade in this area. And the third point that I want to make at, uh, uh, on thinking about trade, making trade more inclusive, is is again the point about the climate transition and the need for it to be just uh, and fair. And here at the WTO, members are taking steps. Uh, you know, to foster more inclusive uh, trade with some of these trilateral negotiations that I was referring before on investment facilitation uh, or on facilitating services uh, uh, trade. And, and all of this is important. So even though we know that addressing issues of the distribution of trade, you know, necessitates the implementation of policies at the domestic level, le level related, you know, to uh, labor markets or housing markets or other issues as well. Uh, trade can indeed play, uh, indeed play a role. Now, on you know, on using trade as an instrument to achieve uh, security objectives. That's a very challenging. Uh, that's a very challenging area. Uh, but here, I think it's important also to think about the consequences of weaponizing uh, trade, uh, and you know what are the uh, spillover effects that this may have in other areas as well. Well, let me pick up on one issue that you just mentioned, which is uh, trade and climate. Uh, this is an issue which is really gaining in prominence. Um, in in the U.S. and Germany, in the EU, but also also at the WTO, um, and I wanted to ask you what 
role you think trade policy can play to combat climate change, but also whether you think the WTO's rules need to be reformed um, to allow more room for its member countries to pursue climate-friendly trade policies, or do you think um, that the rules as they stand are, are are adequate and it's more a question of just taking some new new steps within the current sets of rules? So I think the starting point here uh, is that a globally integrated market uh, backed by a strong rules-based trading system is essential for a successful climate transition because a global economy that is fragmented and dominated by trade policy uncertainty will make the climate transition uh, slower, more costly, and, uh, and less fair. So I see that there are several priority areas to harness the full potential of, uh, of international trade for sustainability. The first is creating open and predictable markets in clean tech. And, you know, if we look at the renewable energy revolution of the past two decades, uh, we've seen massive reductions in the cost of wind and solar energies. So governments can ensure that open and, uh, and predictable trade uh, does for the emerging uh, green technologies what it did for the more mature uh, renewable energy technologies. And this means, for example, reducing tariffs and non-tariff barriers that unnecessarily raise the cost and impair the cross-board deployment of, uh, of critical green technologies. Again, we've made some simulations here at the uh, WTO. Um, and just eliminating tariffs and reducing non-tariff measures on a subset of energy-related environmental goods could boost exports by 5% by 2030, but would also result in uh, increasing in energy efficiency uh, and, um, and reducing uh, global emissions by 0.6%. Uh, so this is, for instance, one area uh, where, where more could be done here uh, at the WTO. Um, but there's also, you know, the possibility of uh, looking at, at the issue of carbon standards and regulations, because there is, uh, you know, a lot of countries are using the standards and regulation to, to advance the transition, and that is good. Uh, but the problem is that diversion uh, overlapping or otherwise inconsistent climate standards and regulations may hinder efforts by companies, particularly you know smaller uh, businesses, uh, to exploit the green competitive advantage and tap into the twenty-six trillion dollar economic opportunity brought about by the climate transition through twenty thirty. And that this is not only bad for inclusivity and jobs, but it also slows down uh, the climate transition. And the third and last point that I want to highlight is the transition from a linear to a circular economy. And here you are asking, Peter, are the trade rules really you know, fit for purpose? And I have to say that many of the trade rules and policies were designed with linear, not circular value chains in mind. And this has resulted in a broad range of obstacles that hinder effort by businesses to, to build reverse supply chains, to use energy and materials more efficient, efficiently. For example, barriers uh, uh, range from export restrictions on scrap materials to import prohibitions on remanufactured goods uh, and more. So I do think that we need cooperation between governments to rethink these trade policies 
and ensured that they enabled circular business models while preventing, of course, illegal trade, including in hazardous uh, materials. Now, in the WTO, we have begun uh, to, you know, see WTO members using these instruments uh, more and more. Uh, there's a, a significant increase, for example, uh, in the number of climate measures that have been notified to the WTO or lively discussions, uh, not only in the WTO Committee on Trade and Environment, uh, but on other committees in the WTO and on this, uh, what we call the structured discussions uh, on environmental uh, issues. So, so, yes, I do see an important role for trade in in uh, in uh, supporting the climate uh, transition, uh, I do think that the WTO rules, uh, you know, some of them are quite relevant, but some of them would also require some fine tuning uh, to be able to uh, leverage the full potential of trade uh, in support of the uh, transition to uh, to net zero. Annabelle, um, alongside. Um activities at the World Trade Organization. Um, we are seeing um, there a number of other fora emerge where what you could call international trade policy, maybe sometimes um, also issues related to technology pol policy and other issues, but you are, you are seeing trade policy being discussed and developed in a certain form. Um, that could be in the G7, uh, but I'm, I'm particularly thinking of things like the US-EU Trade and Technology Council or the um, IPATH that the US and several Asian countries have, have launched. Um, now, I know that in the WTO, there are, uh, uh, there are um, you know, that its rules allow for smaller groupings of countries to, to go forward on issues of common interests through plurilateral efforts. So I'm I'm interested to know how you see these kinds of of of, of fora that have emerged, like the TTC and IPEF, uh, which are based more on kind of like-minded countries coming together. Do you think that they can be a source of trade policy creativity for new rules and also um, at some point for new trade liberalization? So I, I do think, Peter, that trade cooperation in different uh, formats and geometries is, is beneficial. Uh, and, you know, this can be at the bilateral level, at the regional level, among like-minded groups of countries. It can be, of course, at the multilateral level. Um, I do think that there is potential for innovation in these uh, smaller settings, uh, for creativity, as you, were, as you were saying. And I do think that this can then uh, drive broader uh, uh, conversations. Um, you know, if we think, for instance, um, about uh, digital trade, for example, uh, cooperation in this area really started among, you know, four groups of countries uh, in uh, in the in the Pacific, and then has expanded. And now we see different, again, different agreements, different configurations in the area of digital trade. And that conversation is also happening here at the WTO. Uh, so I I do think that you know uh, discussions, open discussions, open arrangements uh, where new issues are, are tackled, uh, where countries come together to cooperate, uh, can have uh, can bring positive energy uh, to the multilateral trading system as well. Well, you have been uh, very generous uh, with your time uh, today, uh, Annabel Gonzalez, Director 
uh, Deputy Director General of the WTO. I want to thank you for being a guest uh, with us, uh, for for sharing your uh, depth of knowledge and uh, your perspective um, uh, on the drift toward geoeconomic competition, the forces that are shaping trade relationships now, and and how uh, the uh, the not only the United States but all of the members of the trading system um, can uh, can try to uh, harness. Uh, the uh, the the benefits of trade to promote uh, climate policy and uh, advancement um, on green trade as well. So thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff, Peter, for having me. And we look forward to having uh, all of our uh, listeners with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist a podcast produced by the American-German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You may know us under our old name, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email at info at AICGS.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we have new handles at A-M-G-E-R-I-N-S-T. And also please visit our website at americangerman.institute formerly AICGS, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Thanks.